when she turned nine, she was this vibrant, feminine, just wonderful, wonderful girl, full of passion for life. And I looked at her so glad, but internally freaked out because I remembered how I was when I was nine, which wasn't anything I'd been thinking about before. And I realized that if I didn't find a way to tap into more joy, more passion, more delight in being a woman, that another nine years living at home with my modeling a more academic approach to life rather than a passionate approach to life, there's no way that she could sustain the passion and the joy and so I thought, okay, I, I need to figure this out. And both of these things, this awareness of not being as satisfied as I had expected, and seeing my daughter's inevitable transition if I wasn't modeling something else, both really spurned me on, coupled with, as I described earlier, the awareness that I was prioritizing my patients over my family and my family over myself in terms of my internal energy. So all of these things converged such that I found the courage, like there is no other word for it, at least in 2005, to take a sabbatical for a year. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from Resolve, a physician contract review company. At Resolve, they believe that knowledge is power for physicians and that power gives you control of your financial future. Resolve believes that by mining, analyzing, and synthesizing data, they can provide you with the information and insight that empowers you to diagnose the health of your career, fully understand your worth, and maximize your full potential. As a company founded by a doctor for doctors, Resolve's focus is on the well-being of those whose purpose in life is to care for the well-being of others. To have this incredible company review your employment contract, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash resolve. The link is also in the description of this show. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Please help me welcome our guest on today's show of Medicine, Marriage, and Money, Dr. Alexandra Stockwell. Dr. Stockwell is a family medicine doctor who transitioned from physician to relationship and intimacy expert eight years ago. Her wisdom has been featured in Cosmopolitan, USA Today, InStyle, Business Insider, and the Huffington Post, just to name a few. She has also been a loving and supportive wife to Dr. Rod Stockwell for 25 years and the encouraging mother of four brave children ranging in age from nine to 24. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Dr. Stockwell. I'm so excited to be here. I was so honored when you invited me. And I have to say, 
I binge listened to all of your initial episodes and it really, it touched my heart. I just want to say this. I'm 52 and I feel like there's a lot of amazing innovation and new ways of doing things and the entrepreneurial spirit among women in medicine now. And mostly that was not true when I was in training. In fact, I didn't know anyone who did that. And there are a lot of things that I experienced in medicine that I thought it was about me and my personality. And it just like there was a part of my heart that was tight that I didn't know was tight until it relaxed in hearing all of these other women's stories on your podcast. And I was like, oh, I wasn't a freak. That was because I was a woman in medicine. Yes. No, you're so right. Like, I don't know what it is about now, but I feel like everybody's more, a little bit more open about it. Or maybe, maybe the people we hang around, the people I hang around are just a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more open to sharing because they're tired of, we're tired of hiding. We're kind of tired of people not knowing that we're all kind of the same inside. We're all human, right? Yes. And actually, if I take it to be even more specific and explicit, I know we're going to talk later about my transition from practicing medicine to being a relationship and intimacy expert. But one of the things that I experienced, and this is how I talked about it to myself 15 years ago, I prioritized my patients over my family and my family over myself. And I really wanted to rework that. I get asked every single time I'm interviewed, which is, you know, more than a hundred times now, Tell me about the transition from physician to relationship and intimacy expert. And when I first started doing interviews and sharing my story in a more public way, I would say, well, I prioritize my patients over my family and my family over myself. And I've been told by many different marketing experts and people who coach coaches and their businesses not to say that because it doesn't it's like not juicy. It doesn't mean anything. It's kind of flat. And yet I heard one doctor after another on your podcast say something like that. And I realized it's because I'm a woman in medicine and any woman in medicine can relate to that, even if the general population doesn't. So I'm, I've started saying it again because it is my truth. And something about hearing the other women in your podcast describe that phenomenon really reflected to me that like there's a universal truth that I experience that pertains to women in medicine that just doesn't pertain to other coaches and other business coaches perspectives. Wow. So they told you not to say that you had been a physician who transitioned? No, they didn't say that, but the part about prioritizing my patients over my family and my family over myself. I've been interviewed and people just like move on as though I haven't said it because it doesn't speak to them. I have so many other juicy things to say and other ways of telling my story, which impact people in a very deep way. But that way just kind of fell flat again I heard women on your podcast saying their version of that and it yes. like it shifted my relationship to my story. So mm -hmm. I'm very glad to share my story and hope to do the same for others listening. 
Well, good. Okay. So tell us then, what is, as an intimacy expert, what is your, and family physician, family medicine physician, what is your definition of marital interdependence? I really love your question. And I think the languaging that I use with this is I talk about uncompromising intimacy. That's actually the name of my book. And what I mean by that is that when you learn to bring all of yourself and be fully expressed in who you are in your marriage and learn to receive your partner in the same way, then that creates collaboration, support, long-term passion. So when you ask about marital interdependence, I think of it as using the relationship as a way to be fully oneself. And when both people are doing that, the most amazing things occur. Ah, okay. Yeah. Going back to oneself, using the relationship to be fully oneself. Amazing things can happen. I love it. And tell us a little, about, a little bit about you. Who are you? Where are you from? Where do you live now? What, what are you doing? I am a relationship and intimacy expert. I've been working exclusively online for many years now. That did not begin with the pandemic. And my husband and I, we met in medical school in New York State. And we've actually moved eight times, not because of the military or anything else. And we've now been in California for eight and a half years. We moved here because at a certain point for our next move, we needed to be somewhere where our oldest child could be near the San Francisco Conservatory. And my husband was offered a position. And so, yeah, we've, we've been here because it's my 13th year of homeschooling. We've been really flexible about where we've lived. Oh, wow. Okay. We're going to get into homeschooling later, but Tell us about the first time you guys met in medical school. Okay, well, we went to SUNY Stony Brook, and at, at Stony Brook on Long Island in New York State, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time when we were there, we started medical school in 1993, there was a trio, a um, violin, piano, and cello trio that was the artist in residence, I think for the whole university. But anyway, at the end of our first week of orientation, they performed a concert to kind of close out the orientation experience. And the director of admissions amazingly remembered that I had a lot of music in my background and on my application. And so she asked me very last minute to turn pages for the pianist. And my husband was in, I mean, he wasn't my husband then, I didn't even know him, but he was in the audience. And he sat and watched my in profile because you know you sit sideways turning pages and every so often leaning forward and turning the page and sitting back down with very upright posture and concentrating with care and he was very clear that he wanted to meet me afterwards oh my gosh that is so precious it really is because we met in medical school but it was in the context of the concert and so then Afterwards, we had a conversation, and I remember there were maybe six of us, you know, all nervous new medical students. And he said something to me, and I said to him, 
let's step back so I can hear what you're saying, because there just was too much noise in the hallway. And I remember we stepped aside and had a conversation, and it felt so intimate. Not what we were talking about, but it was like there was nobody else there. And I kind of knew it was going to go somewhere, because there was a way in which we created an energetic oasis for that conversation, although it definitely wasn't otherwise obvious right away. Wow. And this was in your first year? Yeah, the first week. The first week. You guys were both in the same class. Correct. Yes. And you just knew there was an energetic oasis and then like your love love story took off from there. Well, actually, for me, I knew, but he, he really wanted to get to know me, but was pursuing someone else for dating. So it took him about six weeks to pivot and see me in that way. Okay, six weeks is nothing. <laughs> no, but I was like, we're spending all this time together, we're having these amazing conversations, and you want to date her? But I it's because he was like separating meaningful conversation with romantic pursuit. And once he brought those two together, I was the obvious choice. Oh, yeah. You saw it. You're just like, hey, yeah, six weeks is too long, buddy. <laughs> Meaningful conversations. Exactly. But it's actually a little crazy because I, I had this knowing this might well be the, the person for me. And I postponed our first date because there's someone else I wanted to spend a little, uh, a little time with. I knew that if we, if Rod and I went on our first date, I wouldn't be able to go spend an evening with this other guy. It just wouldn't feel right. And so I postponed our first date so I could. And then I was free and clear to go forward for the rest of my life with, with Rod. Wow. How, how old were you guys at this time? 25. 25. Yeah. So very mature for 25. And then what about, um, tell us just a little bit more about dating the intensity of the first year of med school and even having your child in, in medical school. What was that like? Medical school was really interesting because I was a philosophy major. I went to St. John's College where I read all original texts. I didn't have any textbooks. I didn't have any lectures in college. It was very much a, a liberal arts seminar experience. And so I had done my pre-med prerequisites all in 11 months after I had already graduated from college in order to qualify to apply for medical school. But it meant that I had to work really hard on the basic sciences. Rod had graduated from Harvard, taking science with the non-med school majors. And so he had done calculus with his physics. And the basic science was actually very simple for him. But he started reading all kinds of other things. And had a very like rich intellectual life that didn't have to do with what was happening in the med school curriculum first and second years. And what that meant is that we really didn't have much time to date in any kind of usual way. However, we sat next to one another in the lecture hall. And you have to remember 1993, 1994, we didn't have smartphones. It was a whole other world. And we really grew our relationship by sitting next to one another in class and passing notes back and forth. And sometimes the notes would be about what had happened the evening before. And sometimes the notes would be about what was being discussed 
in the lecture. We would sometimes draw little pictures of the professors. Like we, we flirted, we covered content about biochemistry, but mostly we were in constant communication while sitting in the lecture hall. Although we were just remembering recently that he really was a very focused student. So every now and then he'd say, shh, I want to pay attention. What I think of as our falling in love was really getting to know one another very deeply through passing notes back and forth pretty much all day long. However, I heard him years later say how he fell in love with me, which is because I had had alternative education prior to medical school, my first standardized test was the MCAT because I was accepted to college when I was 16 before I even took the SATs. And I just had a very alternative experience. I had never before been in a classroom where it seemed like the teachers didn't care what we were learning. And the way that that would show up is that the basic science professors would come into the room and then they put up their slides, but the lights would be on. And so I would raise my hand and say, would you mind turning the lights off so that we can see the slides? And so they'd fumble at the podium and turn the lights down. And then someone would ask a question and they'd start illustrating the answer by writing on the chalkboard. But of course we couldn't do it because it was dark. And so I'd raise my hand and it got to where, because of course the science professors, like they'd be coming in for a day or two and we were the ones who were always there. And so I'd raise my hand and say, could you please press the, second button to the left on the podium. And for me, it was super straightforward because I just assumed if they were teaching, they wanted us to learn. And if they were putting something on the board, we should be able to see it. But Rod just was like in awe of how much I cared about the whole experience. And it just turned him on that I cared that everything would be set up for success for everyone involved. I'm sure my classmates who were like, what the heck, it doesn't matter, just let them see. But he really loved it. And I wasn't aware of either. For me, it was just very straightforward. If I was going to be in the room, I presumed the goal was to learn. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's so, so interesting how people fall in love with you, right? First, he saw you turning pages at the piano. I haven't even spoke with you but like the way you turn the pages and now he's like looking at the way you're saying something which seems a little bit obvious but the teachers were not thinking about that yeah um the thing that I really love is even though we were both totally devoted to our medical school education we got to have so many opportunities to get to know one another in various ways. And I think I, I didn't expect that. I thought that dating would need to happen outside of the educational context, but we didn't go to the movies. We didn't go out to dinner very much. Like that just wasn't an option with what medical school asked of us. And yet it really didn't matter because after a year and a half of going through medical education together. We knew one another so well and we're absolutely ready to get engaged. And so that to me is a very hopeful thing that like this whole idea of being able to have it all often seems really complicated because 
you're at work when you're at work and you're at home when you're at home and dating needs to be scheduled and doesn't happen while you're in the classroom. But actually the way that we had it all was because it was very much both and we were in the same spaces for our flirtation, for our working through any kind of communication difficulties and for learning about the Krebs cycle. Like it all happened in the class. And then what about your, you had a baby during medical school, right? Yes. So there was one man who became a father during medical school and took zero time off. And basically, parenting was just a total non-issue for any of the people in our med school class. But I got pregnant actually right before my OBGYN rotation started. I didn't know it at the time, but that was the case. I I just couldn't see taking two weeks off and then going back to school. Like everything that propelled me into medicine and into the experiences I wanted to have in my life and going into family medicine altogether, I didn't want to then sacrifice my family. So I actually took a year off between third and fourth years of medical school and I went and talked with the dean about it, but I was so scared because there were absolutely no medical student parents. I didn't really know residents, although there were some who had children, and I just couldn't figure out how the whole thing was going to work. But I knew I wanted to take time off so that I could really experience being a mother for my child, really. And I went and talked with the dean petrified that you know if I was pregnant I might be kicked out of medical school like I just didn't know how it was going to turn out and happily he was married and got divorced because he spent too much time being a doctor and then went on to get married and have two children and a really beautiful marriage where he prioritized his relationship as well as his doctoring. And so he was profoundly supportive, said, take the year, started telling stories about his own children and when they were born. And that was just a really amazing experience to have that support. And so I did. I I took 12 months off because she was born in September and with the calendar. I needed to just start taking time off in July. And it was actually an incredible experience because I came off of my internal medicine rotation and then took a year off. And I went from feeling important. I mean, I was a third year medical student, but it was the end of third year. And so I felt important and I was moving I don't know, 70 new people every day between patients and family members and the different people I interacted with in the hospital. And then I was at home by myself. We didn't have any anybody that I was interacting with. I didn't know people with young children. My family wasn't nearby. And it was just really hard. And I was so glad that I had my third trimester to have it become normal, to have a slower pace, 
and to have my days fairly open. And if they were going to be meaningful, it was because I was making them meaningful, not because of the adrenaline of practicing medicine in the hospital. And I myself was really grateful that I had that time to adjust before my baby was born, because I think it would have been really hard to go from all the intensity and meaning and feedback of life in the hospital to being home all day with a baby who does not provide that positive feedback. Right. <laughs> Lots of negative feedback. <laughs> crying, crying, pooping. Exactly, exactly. And also just the contrast of just not feeling important as a mother, even though I believed in it, it just doesn't compare to what it's like to be in the hospital. So I'm really grateful that I took that year off and then I could go back really full on and finish medical school. And then I had another baby taking time off between fourth year before I became an intern. Oh, wow. Okay. So were you and Rod slightly, did he take the year off or was he still in med school? He actually took a year off between second and third years because many times during first and second year, he thought about leaving medicine. At the time with my orientation, I became very skillful at walking him back from that ledge. And um, it's like I could see the rightness of his being a doctor in a way that he really couldn't, even though there he was. And it just became important in his process to take some time off and really commit. And so he did. He took a year off between second and third year. He actually, <laughs> he did a dance therapy training. He had been a very active folk dancer in college. He performed Israeli folk dancing. And so even though he's this brilliant man, he had all these creative aspects and he really wanted to pursue them. But the result of giving himself permission to go do that was that he got super clear that he wanted to be a physician and that hasn't really changed since. So it was a good strategy in the end. But it meant that we were out of sync and I had always planned to graduate a year early and go to South Africa because I was so excited <laughs> that South Africa at the time in the 90s was a place where there is a super high level of medical understanding and medical practice similar to Western countries. But there were all of these people who hadn't received healthcare. And so all these diseases that I'd learned about I'd be able to actually see, and because there was less money in South Africa, the physical diagnosis skills were way beyond anything that I was learning in the U.S., and I wanted to really be able to improve my physical diagnosis beyond the standards required to become a licensed physician in the U.S., and I thought South Africa would give me that opportunity, but I didn't go to South Africa. Instead, I had a baby and took a year off and then we graduated together and he did the match, keeping in mind what would be of interest to me. And then we went to UMass Worcester and he started his family medicine internship. And interestingly, I had planned to apply there in the next round, 
but the dean or the I forget what it's called, the director of the family medicine residency actually reached out to me because he had someone who wanted to do a double family medicine and psychiatry residency. And so it meant she'd be a resident in family medicine half the time and a resident in psychiatry half the time. And so he just called me and asked, do you want to basically job share so that a position is filled in the family medicine residency but half the time it's filled by me and half the time it's filled by her. And I was like, sure. So I just have had a very unusual path through medicine. And it's not that he called me and offered it, then I needed to formally submit all of the information and my transcripts and everything. But I think when I started medical school, I had this idea that it was this extremely straight and narrow path where things happened in sequence with really no variation. But in fact, that has not been true for me at all. Wow. Yeah. And look what you've been able to do with it. I mean, both you and your husband, you know, it sounds like you guys know how to make really big decisions and yet still prioritize your personal desires your career objectives, you know, your children. How how do you do that? Do you discuss that with each other? You know, it's a really important topic for us because one of the things that I bring up with couples is I ask them, what is the foundation for your relationship? Because, you know, in the old days, it was a contract between two fathers or two families. And then, you know, it, I think in general, people are looking for a match for love. And there's so many different things that can bring a couple together. But for Rod and me, it has always been, and we were very clear about it even before we got engaged, but it has been the through line for us that we are deeply committed to our own personal growth and the personal growth of one another. And so whenever it comes time to make any kind of decision, either small decision or big decision, it really is our personal growth that is our prime factor. So we've done a bunch of things which early on were really not financially savvy, but they totally were based on what would be good for our personal growth. And so I think there's a way in which I see other couples struggle a lot more with what's good for my career versus what's good for my family. And it creates all kinds of tension, but that's not a tension that we have because our devotion is to our personal growth. And it makes a lot of the expectations, obligations, conventional way of doing things just fall away. We might still do things that are very conventional, but it's not because that's what we're supposed to do. It's because that's what's going to pave the way for whatever our next individual and shared growth steps include. Wow. That that's like wisdom beyond years because I recently learned about like the six human needs. Have you heard of the six human needs? Say more. I can't, I'm not sure. It's something Tony Robbins talk about, talks about. It's 
certainty, significance, uncertainty, love and connection, growth, and contribution. And the two, the two last ones, growth and contribution are like your spiritual needs. Like once you, you kind of have the other ones, certainty, significance, uncertainty, love and connection, you can focus on growth and, and contribution. And you guys really seem to kind of hone in on that, the growth, like one of your spiritual needs. And once you kind of do that, you know, certainty and significance don't become, which is like what so much, so many of us are seeking in our careers. And um, sometimes even in our relationships, we may be seeking a cer- certain cer- certainty and significance. And when we do that, it's so hard to focus on personal growth and contribution back to society. But you guys like knew this. And yet, I mean, you're just devotion. I love that how you ask your, your, your clients that what is the foundation for your relationship? Because when it's personal growth, things just happen. It puts everything in perspective. That's right. And even if that wasn't originally the foundation, it's not like what was the foundation when you started. It's like, what do you want the foundation to be? right now but i i do want to add because i think it's relevant it's worth saying why each of us went into medicine because then this value and the way that our careers have unfolded makes more sense so for rod he graduated from college as a neuroscience major having done all the pre-med prerequisites but his first job was as a self-defense trainer and he was It was a business called Model Mugging, where he would dress up as a mugger and work with another trainer in order to help women basically face their fears and build skills. And it was totally transformative. And so he would see women walk in the door with stooped shoulders and just looking down, women who'd been raped or abused or just really lacking confidence and walk out of this six-week program with light in their eyes, just really transformed, confident, a totally different relationship to themselves and a new capacity to relate with other people. And this was his understanding of healing. And so he thought going into medicine would mean being able to contribute to these kinds of transformation these kinds of transformations for all patients. Of course, it didn't work out that way, but that was the thing that really motivated him. And for me, I was thinking, what do I want to do? And I thought, I want to do something which I would be good at, that would be stimulating and provide lots of opportunity for growth and something that the world needs. And so this was what brought us into medicine. And when I share that, then each of us prioritizing our own personal growth may make a little bit more sense. Okay. And has your, so has your marriage, because you've been married for 25 years, have you guys always been on like the same path, the same page, been the foundation of your, you know, your devotion towards personal growth? Or was there ever a point in your relationship where things weren't going well, like things were stressful and realized something needed to change? You know, there are so many layers to that to my answer to that question, because each of us grew up with divorced parents. He was six when his parents divorced. I was nine and 10. And so when we first married, actually, I felt in love. I was so happy with 
everything we were doing together. And simultaneously in my head, I was totally certain that we were going to get divorced. And I was like making mental notes of how well we got along so that I could tell my children in the future when we had split up, how good it had been when they were young. Like this, it was like I was, um, you know, split personality. Both of these were very real for me in the first years of our marriage. And the other thing that I would say is that when we were both fourth year medical students and we had a nine and 10 month old and needed to navigate that every single Sunday, we would sit down with our calendars and talk about who was on which rotation and who would be staying until the nanny arrived, who would be making sure to come home and relieve the nanny. And if our daughter got sick, which one of us would call in sick. Now, as it turned out, she never got sick, but we certainly knew that, you know, if I'm scrubbed in on a cardiothoracic surgery, I can't be texted to figure that out at that time. And likewise, you know, if he's rounding in the ICU. So every Sunday we discussed the week ahead. And I really think that that was foundational in building good relationship skills because in doing that, we had to learn how to identify and express what each of us needed ourselves and be open and generous in making sure the other person's needs were met. And so really it's through our Sunday night sometimes three hours of discussing the logistics to figure it out so the week would be smooth and we didn't need to put any attention on that. That created this kind of lubricant in our relationship that taught us how to navigate all kinds of things. So that's one phase. And then Fast forward some number of years when we weren't in training, we didn't have babies in diapers. I mean, we did have more children afterwards, but at this phase we didn't. And we weren't working 60 to 100 hours a week. And we each just assumed that once we had time and space, our relationship would be so delicious in the bedroom. Because, you know, as I explained to non-physicians, we never went away on romantic getaways. Like when, when I was an intern, any other couples in our program would want to coordinate their schedules so they'd be off together. But we had a one-year-old and a three-year-old, so we wanted to coordinate so that one of us was always at home at night. So my internship year, we had one weekend off together and went to my brother and sister-in-law's wedding. So the point is, we did not have romance or leisurely afternoons exploring one another's bodies. That just was never part of the early years. I mean, we obviously were making out and having sex and having fun, but it was, it just wasn't a big focus. And so then when we suddenly had time this was not quick and not easy to have to face the fact that we had time, but we still didn't know how to create the kind of sensual intimacy and connection and gratification that 
the poets describe and I had always thought would be part of my life if I was able to communicate well with my husband. And so that was just a completely different learning curve, which was not devastating. I mean, it was sometimes devastating, but it was mostly not devastating because in the context of being devoted to personal growth, this was just the next landscape where it was time to really learn and grow. And we definitely have. Wow. Okay. And was this, was this kind of like when you got this time and you realized these kind of things, is this when you transitioned from a physician to a intimacy expert? Yes. Although because being focused on relationships and intimacy is such a, it's so related to medicine that it's easy for people to assume I went from one to the other in a very organized strategic fashion. That is not how it happened. So what happened is that I was in my mid thirties. I am a very ambitious woman and had worked hard to accomplish all of the goals I had identified to that point. So I was a physician. I had my own small practice north of Boston. I'd paid off my medical school loans. I was married to someone with a very promising future in our marriage. Like we had a really good, strong marriage, even if we weren't extremely passionate at the time. And we had three of our four children. And I just assumed having basically devoted 12 to 15 years of my life to get to this point that I would feel satisfied, contented, and just really glad to live another three, four, five decades of my life from there. And of course, there would be challenges, but that I had really achieved what I had set out to achieve. But that's not how I felt. I I've been asked, well, was I burnt out? No, I wasn't burnt out. I And I wasn't depressed. But I had, like, at the level of a whisper, this sense of hollowness inside that I thought would have been filled by having accomplished these things, which had driven and guided me for so long. And I knew that that like hollowness and not feeling contented as I had imagined would expand and that what was working was not actually sustainable if I ended up feeling depleted. And at this time also, my daughter turned nine and when she turned nine, she was this vibrant, feminine, just wonderful, wonderful girl full of passion for life. And I looked at her so glad, but internally freaked out because I remembered how I was when I was nine, which wasn't anything I'd been thinking about before. And I realized that if I didn't find a way to tap into more joy, more passion, more delight in being a woman, that another nine years living at home with my modeling a more academic approach to life rather than a passionate approach to life, there's no way that she could sustain the passion and the joy. And so I thought, okay, I, I need to figure this out. And both of these things 
this awareness of not being as satisfied as I had expected and seeing my daughter's inevitable transition if I wasn't modeling something else, both really spurned me on, coupled with, as I described earlier, the awareness that I was prioritizing my patients over my family and my family over myself in terms of my internal energy. So all of these things converge such that I found the courage, like there is no other word for it, at least in 2005, to take a sabbatical for a year. So I dialed down my practice and said I was going on sabbatical, although I knew and said to no one but my husband that I might not return. And basically, I gave myself space. You told him you might not return? Yes. I, I knew I might not return to practicing medicine. I didn't mean not return to him. Just that I went on a sabbatical, and I feel like I did um, physicals for an insurance company, and I did some consultations around learning issues and things like that for private schools. Like I didn't, I didn't stop being a doctor, but I stopped being responsible for patients' health and navigating medical issues. I still, I had a household to run. I was raising three children, but I had space in my life for the first time. And I took a dance class. I did a painting class. Like I just did things because I felt like it, not because they had a purpose to help me achieve my overall goals. And I don't think I had done that since I was a little girl, just done something because I felt like it. That was reason enough, even though it didn't have a specific place in the big plan of my life. And doing that was wonderful. It was like all of these dormant aspects of who I am were nurtured and had room for play and experimentation. And I had never really worn makeup that much, not for any like philosophical principle. It just wasn't important. And I started wearing lip gloss and wearing earrings that were not just studs. Like I, I took delight in things that had just been unimportant when my goal was to raise my family well and become a doctor and practice medicine with responsibility and integrity and kindness. So in this extended journey of really self-discovery and reconnecting with the parts of myself that had to die to accomplish what I had accomplished. At one point, I was clear that the next realm for discovery was sensuality and sexuality. And that even though many people experience that early in their relationship, this was coming, oh, 12, 15 years into our marriage. And I don't remember, I guess I should be precise. We got married in 90, so 10 years into our marriage, nine years into our marriage. Um, it like all runs together when it's over, but it was nine years after we got married. And so I took this training in sensuality and sexuality and how to just experience more pleasure and it happened to double 
as a coach training. And at the time, I had no idea what a coach was. It didn't matter. I took the letters after my name seriously. I would never have gone to someone who wasn't professionally trained in whatever their field was. But I was there for my own expansion and delight. And I thought, well, I'll just check out the coaching lab because that's what some of the other people in the training are learning. And as soon as I went to the first lab, I just knew I was home and that through coaching, I'm able to do the things that I loved most about practicing medicine without having the things that um, weren't optimal for me. And so I have to look back. You know, I am definitely an MD in all kinds of ways, but I no longer am licensed. I live in California and I haven't practiced in California. And I am fully devoted to coaching individuals and couples to have beautiful, stable, passionate relationships based in some of the principles that we've been talking about, which I also detail in my book, Uncompromising Intimacy, because I think this it's just key to lifelong passion and having relationships get juicier and more delightful with time to really focus on your own personal growth and how to share the truth of who you are without adjusting so that your spouse feels better, but also not sacrificing saying it in a way that's real for you. Like there, it's all about the both and to deeply honor yourself and deeply honor your spouse. And there just aren't a lot of places where that is taught. Right. No, I mean, I love it. It sounds like the message you're, you're getting across here is, you know, you just have to be authentic. You know, when you say share your truth and I love how you found courage when you just weren't as satisfied as you thought you would be, because I feel like so many of us feel that. Like once we've arrived at the end of the, the medical school residency journey at the end of the tunnel, yeah, we end up placing our patients over our family, family over self, everything you just mentioned. And then you went on this beautiful journey to figure out what was going to be the next stage of your life. And intimacy was your next stage. And now you kind of do this for everybody else who comes and touches your life, like all of your clients. How do you help your clients? Like people who may be suffering from some, from some pretty painful and hollow places or, you know, hollow relationships. How do you even begin to start helping somebody like that? Well, I'm going to answer, but I want to say that the journey is both the same and quite different if the relationship is hollow and just really challenging and needs to like there's a need to reconnect and relationships which are really good a lot of the people i work with from the outside it looks like their relationship is just wonderful but in the context of relationship there is so much more expansion and connection and we are generally trained to settle whether we are settling with a kind of sad hollow relationship or we are settling with a really good relationship either way i want to serve people who are willing 
to both like go inside and reconnect in order to expand and have more. So how do I do that? The first thing, again, regardless of the flavor of the relationship when people start, actually I'll spell it out in a few ways. The first thing is to remember what drew you to this person? Because if you're in a phase of being dissatisfied, you will see all the things that bug you, that don't work for you, that create resentment. And it's really important if you're going to go in that direction to transform those things that don't work, to do it in the context of remembering what drew you to one another. And I have had some of the most favorite moments of my life sitting with clients in an initial session, asking, what drew you to him? What drew you to her or her and her, whatever? Um, because what comes out of people's mouths when they settle in and talk about the person that they are sharing a life with is inevitably profound, inspirational, poignant, and the other person doesn't know it. <laughs> yes. So if you're listening and you want more juice and more connection in your relationship, like the first thing to do, I was going to say the easiest, but honestly, this isn't necessarily easy if it's not part of the culture of the marriage to express things this way. It actually can be quite challenging, but it is worth it. And it's not to do it in order to be transactional. Like if one of you is listening and you express it, don't do it in order to hear from your partner what they love about you. Do it because it feels so good to evoke and share what you admire in this person who is going about their life not knowing that you see that. That is like 100% of the time, partners will hear things that they didn't know their partner saw and loved. So that's the first thing. And then the next thing really is to look at what you notice about yourself when your partner is bugging you or annoying or triggering. That our partners, yes, we are drawn to them for their wonderful qualities and we are also drawn to them because they trigger and activate our childhood wounding. I'll just use that general term. And when they do, there is the possibility to heal and transform and reclaim our joy and purpose and vitality for life that we wouldn't have access to if our partners were not so annoying and like poking us in those spots which have been smoothed over and kept safe since childhood. So. Uh, I want to say one more thing, which is that what I have discovered is that when we withhold, when we withhold things which are complicated, we are closing down the connection with our partners. And as human beings, there is no switch to flip when we get to the bedroom. So if we want to be expressed and receive and deliciously connected in the bedroom, we need to be cultivating that in our day-to-day -day interactions as well. Because as I love to say, anything which isn't sex is foreplay and every single interaction 
either brings you towards more connection or away. It can be very subtle or it can be very intense, but there really is no way to have passion and sensual intimacy and erotic connection unless you are actively cultivating the emotional intimacy. This isn't true with a one night stand, obviously, but when you are living together and you have a whole context of interactions, focusing on the emotional intimacy so many times just paves the way to heat things up in the bedroom without explicit attention beyond the emotional intimacy. But in order to experience emotional intimacy, we really have to deal with our own internal experience. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so, okay. The three things you said, I love this. Okay. So number one, what drew you to your spouse and, and express it to him? Not, not to be transactional, but just do it because they don't know it. And it could be so profound and inspirational. I want to give some examples of that. Cause like, um, I remember one woman who thought that her husband thought she was a nag because she really likes the home kept well, no clutter, no mess. And so she felt like she, a lot of her interactions with her husband and children were nagging them to clean up after themselves. And he expressed how grateful he was to be living in a beautiful home that would never be that way without her attention. But she'd never received that feedback before. So these are the kinds of things that come up when one goes deep in expressing that. So I know you were doing a list, but I wanted to do that example. Oh, no, that's a perfect example. And then clarify the second one for a little bit, because you ask us to look at what we notice about our spouse that bugs us, and then what do we do with that? Okay, um, I'll give an example. So one of the things that used to happen would be my husband Rod and I would be together in the evenings, and I might say, will you do the dishes tonight? And he'd say yes. And then I'd wake up early the next morning and there would be dishes in the sink. <laughs> and I have done a lot of different things in that scenario. I have just been pissed and said nothing and done nothing and gone about my day, but it doesn't make me very inclined to kiss him good morning when I see him. Or I have done the dishes either just you know, just done them is like, well, I better do them or done them, you know, loudly and with like, oh my God, you know, everything I do is like, we should have been doing this. Like, there are so many options of, of reacting. But instead, what I learned to do is to realize, oh, I feel unimportant. I feel like, what matters to me is irrelevant for him. I feel taken for granted. In my situation, it's not that I think, oh, he's not a man of his word. He's a man of his word. If he didn't do it, he forgot or he was tired. But like, it doesn't arise in me that I can't trust him. It might in somebody else. But for me, what it brings up is 
that I just don't really matter and my experience is irrelevant. And so, first of all, it takes practice and slowing down and awareness and the willingness to risk finding out what's going to come up. But if I go to him and say, damn it, you didn't do the dishes, or I don't say anything, that really doesn't change anything in the future. But if I go to him and I say, with real vulnerability, no blame, honestly, I have gratitude for the awareness. Not that I want to give positive feedback for not doing the dishes, but I can come with gratitude and kindness and say, when I saw the dishes weren't done, I just felt taken for granted and like my experience isn't important to you. And that leads in a totally different direction than any of the other options which are going to end up productive. But when that happens, then I get to realize, oh, I'm someone who wants to be seen. And when I'm not, it is really challenging for me. And none of those things have anything to do with him. But the experience of him not doing the dishes when he said he would provided the ingredients for me to come to this awareness and then I can choose what I want to do with the awareness once I have it. So that's an example of the second thing. Like if, first of all, if you have any kind of complaints, whether you're speaking them or just thinking them to yourself about your spouse's behavior, what does not serve your marriage is to focus on the complaint. What serves your marriage is to look for the desire that is buried in that complaint. But the activity of shifting from complaint to desire is, is an activity which is fundamentally about looking inside. Is that more clear? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfectly clear now. And then the third thing you said it was, was about emotional intimacy. And... And really, you said everything is either leading us towards connection or away from connection. I think we sometimes think that things can be neutral, but something that's neutral functionally is leading towards disconnection. Right, right. So how can we take everything, every interaction, every instance, every moment together and make it make us connected, more connected? Are you asking me that? Well, I guess I'm just saying, you could answer it. Do you have an answer? <laughs> My answer, honestly, is what um, I have a program called the Aligned and Hot Marriage. And there are six modules and every module is an answer to that question. But the way that I would answer it right now is that what builds connection is actually in a more vulnerable way sharing what your experience is and being open to your partner's response but we don't even need to look at complicated things let's say that uh, either you or your spouse are headed out the door to go to work there's a way that you can say okay see you later and that 
isn't very connecting or mm -hmm. you can actually it doesn't take any more time it just takes attention stop look your partner in the eyes and say i'm looking forward to seeing you this evening and that would be an example where in the one case see you later like it's polite it's nice but it doesn't feel like it's adding any fuel to the relationship versus the second way that I said it, it is. Wow, how simple. Something, just one sentence, such a, I love that. I'm looking forward to seeing you this evening. I'm going to start using that. I mean, and really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, or it could be, um, if you don't look forward to seeing him in the evening, I mean, that's a real scenario. It could be, I'm so grateful that you're going to be with the kids this evening so I can have some time alone. Like, it's always honest, but there always is going to be something not take the marital connection for granted that isn't time consuming. Like, that's the thing that I want to emphasize. It just requires attention. Right, right. This stuff does not have to be time consuming. It's a part of your every day. I just love it. Oh my gosh. And I've taken up over an hour of your time, Dr. Stockwell. I thank you so much for coming and sharing all of these tips with us. I know we really didn't have time to talk about anything money or financial. Is there anything, any anything you want to add about um, money in your marriage or in medicine? I do. It's been a whole learning curve and I want to share just one particular story which also illustrates everything that I've already shared about personal growth that drives and motivates us. So my husband is also a family medicine doctor and we were in the Boston area and in Massachusetts there is one of, it might even be the highest um, number of doctors per capita in the country i'm not like i don't i don't have that kind of data i'm not current on that kind of data but that was the case and what that means is that as a family medicine doctor he he looked at the bell curve of family medicine salaries in the u.s and he saw that he was in like the 15th percentile, despite being an excellent physician doing good work. And it had everything to do with the fact that we were in Massachusetts. And in 2008, we lost so much money in our home and we made a number of decisions that were poor financial decisions. Like that's a whole story that I won't get into, but the point is we really wanted to turn our finances around. And he's like, why shouldn't I be at the other end of the bell curve in terms of family medicine salaries? And so to resolve all of the challenges that we were facing at that time from a financial perspective, we actually moved to rural Kansas for two years where I don't know if we use numbers on here, but I'll just say he was making $90,000 a year and he went to making $233,000 a year working fewer hours, but it had to do with the fact that the, uh, supply and demand ratio was drastically different in rural Kansas. 
And so we were there for two years and then all of our finances were different. And then we moved to the Bay Area in California. Wow. And then he probably, I mean, took another price change, right? Moving to the Bay Area or how, how, what did that look like? Yes, a very significant change, both, I mean, mostly because of the cost of living. The, the house that we lived in in Kansas, which was a beautiful custom, the builder had built it for himself as a 3,400 square foot house that was a $300,000 house that in the Bay Area would be about $2 million. So, so our standard of living in terms of our home changed drastically when we moved to California, but we get to be somewhere that has a higher standard of living in elements that are important to us, like the level of education and all kinds of other things. And we wanted to be somewhere. Our oldest is a uh, professional musician now, and we wanted to be near a conservatory. And there are no conservatories in Kansas, but she. Not rural Kansas, right? Right. Well, there are music schools, but there aren't conservatories in Kansas. And anyway, so we we feel really good about our financial decisions one of the things about moving to california um it's it's actually very funny to me because i'm allowed within the context of our marriage to say, share all kinds of like personal things about our sex life and i used to be such a private person but i'm clear that i'm 52 i'm overweight and i have extraordinary sex on a regular basis and I want people to know that it's possible and the only way for them to do that is if I share so I've gotten over myself and I share all kinds of things and my husband is fine with that I asked him once and he's like as long as it's the truth I'm okay if you tell people <laughs> but I'm not allowed to say where he works so oh you're not allowed to hear you're not allowed to say I'm not works. allowed to say that there's there's a non-compete clause and like but he worked for a very large medical system which has excellent benefits and so that made a difference in our move to California so even though the cost of living is higher where we will be when we retire is way more solid and very good because of the excellent benefits of the institution that employs him that I cannot name on air, even though I can tell you all kinds of juicy things. That's why I was saying that. It's just a very funny situation to be in. That is hilarious. And I just love it. I love he how he allows you to be who you are. I mean, I love how confident you are, how you found your courageousness and can just share this with the world. Where, where can people find you, Dr. Stockwell? I can be found at my website, alexandrastockwell.com. I'm on, I'm mostly on Facebook. I'm going to be on Instagram more and more. I have a Facebook group, the Heat Up Your Marriage community. I'd love for anyone to join. There are a number of doctors there, although it is definitely not only for doctors. And also my book, Uncompromising Intimacy, it Anything that I've shared speaks to you. I think 
you will get a great deal from reading it. And it's both my story and stories of clients. And every chapter includes some implementation and action steps you can take in order to create more emotional intimacy, which as far as I'm concerned is what it's all about. If you want to have passion in your marriage and have that then ripple over into the rest of your life. Ah, okay. Well, I love it. I'm sure you're going to have lots of people reaching out to you, reading your book, visiting your website. I'm going to have to join your Facebook group, Heat Up Your Marriage. Thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough for coming to to be so vulnerable here on such a you know private, difficult topic, topic for a lot of people to talk about, including me. I don't talk about this stuff. So Okay, well, you've been wonderful asking the questions, and I am really excited that the next time we talk, it will be me interviewing you and Victor for my podcast. So That's right. You have to tell us what we're going to talk about. Well, I will. I will. But for now, anyone who is listening, you should come listen to my podcast, Victor. It's called The Marriage Podcast. And of course, we haven't interviewed it yet, so I don't know when it will be released. But that's fun to look forward to. Yes, yes. Yeah, we're scheduled for our interview um, this Saturday, this coming up Saturday. So, okay, perfect. such a great show with Dr. Alexandra Stockwell. Before we end, let's give you the link for our sponsor again. If you need help reviewing your employment contract before you sign, reach out to a company with great online reviews and reputation for doing that and more. Find Resolve at www.drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash resolve to get the review process started today. Such a good episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexandra Stockwell. Now for my three big take-home points from Dr. Stockwell. Every interaction or non-interaction between our spouse and us is either moving us towards connection or driving us away from connection. So let's enhance every moment in order to foster more love, and this will result in a more intimate relationship. Number two, being authentic in our relationships. Hiding or walking on eggshells does not lead to connection. Authenticity does. We need to figure out a way to regain friendship and love. And if we cannot do this on our own, maybe it's time to consider seeking help. Number three, Discovering what the foundation of our relationship with our spouse is may draw us closer to them. Just sitting down and thinking, what is the foundation of our relationship? That may foster more connection. We may think about something we've never thought about before. What is it? For Dr. Stockwell, she took us on her journey of their devotion to each other's personal growth, outlined by basically their entire life thus far. Imagine how our relationship could enter the next level if we invited this concept into our lives and our relationships as well. And that is it, my friends. I hope you walk away asking yourself, 
what drew me to my spouse or my partner? What bothers me about my spouse and how can I transform this bother into something more helpful for our relationship? How can I bring up difficult conversations in a non-threatening way? How can I create more emotional intimacy in my relationship? Thank you so much, friends, for listening. I hope you spread love and positivity and joy into this world. Reach out to me at medicinemarriageandmoney.com if you ever need anything. Please subscribe and share this show to one of your friends or families who perhaps has never heard of these concepts before. They may be starting to sound familiar to you because we talk about them every week, but not, not everyone my friends, here's about this. I know it seems common sense to us, but uh, not to everybody. So thank you so much for sharing and for loving. Thank you so much. Much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.